Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boulouris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analysts Allison Clark and Tom Motion to discuss trust in the financial services industry. Welcome both. Great. Thanks for having us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before we dive into the specifics of trust in financial services, Steph, I'm going to do something a little unorthodox here and put you on the spot. We've done a ton of research around trust and around something that Forrester calls the trust imperative. Can you provide a little bit of context around that, that body of research before we get into some specifics around the financial services industry? Yeah, we proposed this hypothesis a couple of years ago, and it, the hypothesis is that given the turbulent decade ahead, and we truly believe that the 2020s, you know, these these first turbulent two years that we've experienced so far, the political instability, the social instability, uh, the financial uncertainty, the environmental crises, the health crises, that is actually going to come to define the decade. So in this incredibly turbulent decade, the concept is, is that the organizations that can build trust with people that are really desperate to look for safety, for certainty, uh, for confidence that the organizations that they work with are actually putting their concerns ahead of short-term profits, those are going to be the organizations that will be the most successful. They'll have the most competitive differentiation. They'll have the most loyal customers. They'll win the war for talent. They'll be able to pick and choose the partners that they can create unique business models with. And they'll also be the organizations that will be able to deploy a lot of the emerging technology that's coming out in ways that people actually embrace, as opposed to fearing that it's going to create some dystopian future. And um, so far, all of our qualitative research and our quantitative research has proven has proven that out. So for us, it's gone beyond hypothesis and it's, it's, it's fact. Um, the other thing that we did in our research too is we wanted to make sure that trust was concrete. So many people think of trust as this abstract concept or something that just magically arises uh, out of your activities, as opposed to something that you can deliberately do something about. So we actually have a definition for trust. It's the confidence and the high probability that the outcome of our relationship is going to be positive. And that means individual to organization, individual to individual. Uh, etc. And then the other thing we did in our research is we researched the, the levers of trust. What are the things that you can pull on, the things that you can deliberately do that will increase trust? And we defined seven levers that, uh, again, we validated through quantitative research. And th throughout the, the podcast today, we'll hit on some of the levers, but it's things like accountability, competence, consistency, integrity, empathy, dependability, and transparency. Uh, again, we're very confident that these are the right seven, the right seven levers. And, and I just add to that, I think, you know, that's the imperative, right? The imperative is that trust is kind of up for grabs right now. Um, you know, I think what we're, we're seeing from consumer behavior and, and also what we're seeing in our data and so on is that, you know, it's not that people are suffering from a lack of trust. They do, but they're constantly adjusting it and moving it around. And so as they lose trust in certain organisations, then they'll redirect that to other entities. And I think that for me kind of really encapsulates what came out of that research, this real kind of imperative and urgency 
that where we are right now is that trust is up for grabs, um, you know, and there are revenue benefits and organisational benefits to this. Um, and it makes it really critical to kind of now at this time try and understand what it means, what drives it, how do you earn it, you know, what does it take? Um, and, and that to me was, I know I found that one of the most compelling things out of that, uh, that research that we've been doing. So when we take a look at financial services specifically, trust feels like that's foundational to this industry, right? But from your research, it, it looks like some firms or most firms may not actually be that good at building trust or be that focused on building trust. Can you expand upon that a bit more? So yes, you know, what we're finding in our research is that uh, financial services brands, trust in financial services brands is is surprisingly weak. Uh, and we're seeing very few brands with strong levels of customer trust. To give you an example for that, in the US, when we look at customer trust, only 2% of the brands that we looked at were considered strong on trust by their customers, and 57% were weak. Um, and that really matters, right? Because when customer trust is strong, Financial services firms are going to reap those financial, competitive and reputational benefits. They can expand and extend their customer relationships. When it's weak, though, uh, you know, they lose those benefits and they've got to fight much harder to win them. So um, when we looked into this and, and, and why trust was perhaps so weak, I think inflation and market volatility perhaps impacted customer sentiment to, to some extent. But I think more critically, it really feels like financial services firms don't really understand what drives trust or customer trust. They don't know how to measure it. And what that means is perhaps some of their efforts may be misplaced. Uh, I know, Tom, you did some research on this where you spoke to some financial services firms about how they're earning trust. And I think this is what you found as well, right? Yes, absolutely. But um, um, the premise that uh, uh, I built, you know, in my research, this is this is a sort of a prequel before the um, the financial services customer trust index that we built. So before that index work started, I actually launched a, a, a research with interviews uh, with select uh, major global regional uh, banks and asked them that question, what makes you trustworthy? In their own opinion, not customer's opinion, in their own opinion, what is it that makes them trustworthy in the eyes of consumers? Um, and uh, what I found is that there's this disconnect. Uh, they, they tend to look at trust from their own perspective, and the audience to which they're trying to appeal to most of all is the regulators. So therefore, um, you know, opinions like if we are well capitalized, if we have a long history, if we are compliant, if we are resilient, if we have a very high solvency ratio, you know, like if we keep our NPLs uh, low, if we, uh, you know, make sure to, you know, uh, manage our, you know, loan deposit ratios and things like that, we do prudent risk taking, yeah, risk management practices. All of that stuff makes us trustworthy. If we are a large bank with, a, you know, a hundred fifty year old history and stuff like that, should make us trustworthy. Look at how many branches we've got, how much presence we have. We, we exist in 50, 60 countries. That stuff makes us strong. That that stuff makes us trustworthy. And and there are industry associations that actually sort of uh, laud these characteristics. They actually, you know, uh, create ratings in terms of strength. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, and they usually look at these kinds of characteristics, which are internal uh, or compliance or financial characteristics, but they actually fail to capture what makes them trustworthy in the eyes of consumers. And that is the, that is the big disconnect. They, they don't measure that. They don't poll their customers. They don't even know how to uh, you know, um, articulate what that is. Um, and, and that's the biggest challenge that I found because what makes a bank trustworthy in the eyes of consumers is different. In fact, what they themselves think makes them trustworthy. It, and it's interesting because this actually came out in our financial services customer trust imperative data and it kind of reinforced what you had already heard from those interviews you did. Um, so, you know, in the uh, the, the, the trust uh, index, we assessed and looked at around 14 to 15 different drivers of trust that were unique to the industry. So, you know, for banking, you know, we would look at things like, you know, do people think that the bank keeps their money safe? Uh, and interestingly on that, around three quarters of customers believe their primary bank has that trait. But guess what? That's kind of, that wasn't one of the important drivers of trust. When we looked at all those drivers, what we found is that customers want banks to take care of them. They want them to take their side and care about them. And so what we found is that when we looked at the top four drivers, you know, there things about there were things like, you know, I want them to do what's right for me. Um, I want to um, transparency about how the bank uses my data. I, I want them to understand my financial needs and, you know, I want them to care about my financial well-being. And what we found is that those top drivers of trust, the things that really matter to earning consumer trust or conversely destroying consumer trust, were the ones that customers, they were among the ones that customers thought the firms did most poorly at. In fact, it was, I think, around 55% of customers thought their banks had these kind of top four traits. Um, so again, I, the data is kind of reinforcing that I think that financial services firms misunderstand what's driving consumer trust and therefore their efforts to earn it are perhaps in the wrong place. So we know trust is valuable. Um, in your research, you've introduced this concept called the trust outcome gap. Maybe explain a little bit about what that is and, and why financial services leaders should care about it. So, so the outcome gap really is, uh, is the difference between people who have high trust and low trust, right? So what we've seen is distinct differences in their behaviors. We studied those behaviors and we found that uh, there are four distinct types of behaviors. First type is the revenue-related behaviors, anything that drives revenue as a result of trust. Uh, and uh, the second one being engagement. Third one being the strength of the brand, and the fourth one being forgiveness. Those are four families of outcomes. And when you zoom in on those uh, uh, sort of polar opposites, you have the, the two sides, uh, these two groups of people with either high or low trust, they behave differently. They either reward somebody, uh, their, their primary bank, with uh, revenue, engagement, brand, um, and forgiveness, or they sort of detract that that trust and detract that behavior. So they essentially, they punish that brand. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and the big outcome of that is um, obviously a bank fa failing to capture that trust or maintain that trust suffers as a result. 
the, the interesting thing that I found out of out of the research and, you know, when we got the consumer data back is that, you know, the outcome gap in a sense is sitting around, you know, roughly around 50%, just, you know, for want of a better word, and in the US and the UK. And that's the differential between, like, if you have a customer with high trust, um, you know, if they're going to recommend you to family and friends or open an account with you again, you know, about 90% of customers with high trust say they'll do that. But the customers with low trust in your brand, only about 40% are going to do that. So there's a huge differential and a huge, I think, revenue incentive to earn trust. But but what I also found interesting is that it also plays out in terms of brand extension, right? So if, if you want to expand into new markets, if you want to expand your brand to products and services perhaps that aren't related to what you're doing now. And what's interesting, of course, in financial services and banking is we're seeing a lot of that, right? We're seeing embedded finance. We're seeing um, firms look at new business models, expand into different way, different things. And if you want to do that, again, trust plays an important role. You know, customers with high trust are, seem to be willing to follow you into those new markets and to other brands that are affiliated with you. With low trust, again, the opposite occurs. Uh, and then the other one, I, 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 you know, forgiveness, same sort of thing, right? High forgiveness, low forgiveness, depending on trust. But what I found really interesting, and also because this came up as one of the key drivers around data and data transparency, is that, again, huge differential. Customers that trust you really are happy to share more of their personal data with you. Customers that don't, you know, again, it's about uh, a, a kind of 40 to 50 basis point difference in terms of the customers that will give you that data. And so if you're an organization that is becoming more data driven, which of course we're seeing, wanting to use that to better serve customers and so on, I think what you do around that data, the transparency you have, how you collect it, what you use it for, how you add value to it, um, can either earn or destroy trust and of course have a massive impact on the willingness of customers to share that with you. Uh, which is important given so many rules and regulations coming in that I think may restrict firms' ability to be able to buy data out in the market, right? So they have to go and get it from customers, I think, more and more going forward. What's the relationship between CX quality or customer experience quality and how that affects trust? I mean, is there a relationship? It seems like there would be, especially if we're talking about, you know, loyalty and things that we know CX quality. When you have great CX quality, there's an impact there. So what's the relationship or did you see that in the data? Yeah, we absolutely saw that in the data. So I think what's interesting, well, first of all, we found that higher trust levels are correlated with higher customer experience quality, right? So when we looked at our rankings in the uh, the trust index, customer trust index work, we found that often the leaders were also leaders in our customer experience index, which means they're delivering great experiences. Equally, we also found a similar uh, kind of uh, correlation at the bottom, right? People at the bottom of trust were often at the bottom of, of the CX. And I think the interesting thing around this is that it comes back to trust. Trust is something that, you know, a customer might come in to the relationship with you. They're a new customer to your brand and they'll have a certain expectation uh, around things and a certain level of trust or expectation around the experience. But it's the interactions that happen over time, right? Those every interaction that they have is it's an opportunity to either build trust or destroy trust. So, you know, my belief that a firm is going to maybe do the right thing by me and take my side 
that will get reinforced or perhaps destroyed, or it could even grow depending on what happens with my interactions with that organization over time. And so there is this kind of um, time nature to building and, and, and or destroying trust, right? And so for me, that then makes intuitive sense that we saw this correlation because customer experience is what happens. It is those interactions over time. So if you're delivering great experiences over time um, that meet or exceed expectations, then that is likely to grow your trust. And conversely, if they're, you know, they're not great experiences and they can destroy your trust. So if you are a brand that actually has low trust today, how do you start the journey to improvement? Like wh where do you actually start? I think the first thing is to stop guessing. <laughs> I think um, what we've uncovered is that a lot of firms think they know what trust is. They have their own views of it, as, as Tom talked about. And so I think one of the first thing is to um, really assess it and understand what, how, what drives customer trust in your brand. It's all about perception and what they think of you. You know, back to Tom's point, you know, just because you've been in business for hundreds of years, just because you've got you know, trillions of dollars of assets and, and strong capitalization, that doesn't make customers trust you. So I think measurement is is the first step in that. Yeah, you know, just because a trust measurement is, is something new. I mean, this is what, you know, we're trying to do here at Forrester to introduce that to the market to, to make more people aware um, of it and uh, offer them tools and solutions. But, you know, up until now, uh, financial services firms uh, globally really didn't have a tool. So uh, for that reason, they've been very reactive. And there's a story I wanted to tell. Um, it, it, it has happened uh, recently here um, um, in Asia. A very large bank uh, was, fell victim to uh, a, you know, a phishing scam, um, basically an attack um, on the bank where about 790 or 800 customers were affected. Their personal data was stolen, um, such as, you know, your, your logins and, and pin codes and things like that. And then as a result, uh, these um, hackers actually stole about $10 million worth of, uh, of customer funds, okay, from their accounts. Um, and uh, this is 10 million U.S., um, and and basically what happened after that, you know, the the bank, you know, was hit with this reputational damage and, and a loss of trust, obviously. And then the regulators stepped in and what the regulators have done uh, was uh, was maybe a little bit exaggerated. But nevertheless, they they uh, they they made a new requirement on the bank. They imposed a new mandate that they increased their capital um, um, capital reserves by two hundred fifty million dollars. Okay, so ten million dollars was was stolen. The regulators imposed twenty five times that amount in terms of uh, cap additional capital requirements on the bank, which you know obviously reduces your shareholder value, your dividends, and things like that. So they were hit financially. They were punished uh, financially for that. Uh, and then the blowback was uh, significant in the market in terms of you know customers themselves thinking that this bank potentially is not uh, not trustworthy. Um, you know, to keep their information safe and to, to safeguard their money. <clears throat> now, as a result, this bank felt the imperative, as Stephanie was saying at the, at the beginning, to go and try to measure trust or at least to, to, to get the pulse of what the customers are feeling right now uh, and how severe is this. And they went out with a, with a questionnaire, and the results of that questionnaire uh, were very, very interesting. 
half of the customers said as a result of this attack and as a result of the bank's failure to you know to keep them safe uh, they trust the bank less the other half however said that the way the bank swiftly responded uh, to this crisis and uh, you know refunded all the uh, customers, their monies, apologized and did that very swiftly. The way they acted uh, and the way they, you know, put in measures to uh, to to communicate to, the, to others about the dangers of being scammed, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, made them trust the bank more. It was it was a brilliant example, but the the genesis of this action, where did this action start from, was from an unfortunate event. That's what triggered it. So. A takeaway here is, uh, I would say, don't wait until these things happen, right? You, your question was, where do you start and when do you start? I think when do you start is more important. You, you need to start now. <laughs> don't wait until uh, a crisis happens and then you're you're basically playing catch up or defense. Uh, trust is something very fragile. It's 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 very hard to earn it and it's very easy to burn it. It, you can burn it or lose it in a moment. Um, and that's why, you know, my main point being is start now. So I'm curious, what do we predict for the future? I know we've actually made some formal predictions around trust, specifically within financial services. What are some of our, our predictions for 2023? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to, to, to predict the future, right? Sometimes we, we need to look a little bit at the past. Um, what was interesting is that we found that in 2022, trust fell from an all-time high for um, financial services firms in, in many countries. So 2021 or 2020 was a real kind of high for trust and consumer trust in financial services brands. And I think that was a result of a lot of the programs that people put in place during the pandemic, you know, um, uh, in terms of, you know, allowing people to delay loan and credit card repayments. Um, perhaps there was reduced interest rates. Um, some of them kind of waived certain fees for customers. So everyone kind of came together to really help customers experiencing a kind of tough economic time that we were all going through during the kind of health crisis and the, and the situation of COVID. What we think is going to happen, though, you know, as we head into the next economic cycle, potential global recession um, is that some brands perhaps may forget uh, the lessons that they learned during the pandemic. And what I mean by that is that trust rose in the pandemic when firms showed empathy towards customers. They helped them with the situation. They understood their financial need and showed that they cared about them. I have a feeling that some firms, as we go into tougher economic times and a potential um, uh, global recession, is that they may forget about those lessons and the benefits through that time. Um, they may not have the same sorts of programs to really help customers navigate a cost of living crisis. Combining that with the fact that we can see that empathy is a real kind of gap here and a real opportunity for banks, I think firms that want to kind of defy the, the the trend of what we expect to see in terms of declining trust, I think some brands will step up. But if they want to step up, then it's about leading with empathy, you know, taking that data-driven approach with concrete and kind of targeted actions to help customers, you know, during tougher economic times. 
I would add to this another um, another context. Now we are in a high interest environment. What happens in a high interest environment? Banks, you know, follow the Fed and they inter- you know they raise their mortgage interest rates, credit all loan uh, all loan types basically interest rates go up. As a result of that, the the biggest revenue driver for banks, which is net interest income, goes up. Um, the the last quarter's uh, results came in, and a lot of banks enjoyed record level profit because of the high interest rate environment. Because that gives them uh, the ability to earn net interest, you know, raise their net interest, you know, margins, and as a result, net interest income. That's great time for banks. Banks are not necessarily suffering right now. Consumers are suffering right now because of the cost of living. Uh, rise, rise in the cost of living, and also the affordability uh, of their mortgages, and et cetera, et cetera, because their their salaries are not rising at the same rate that the interest rates are um, are rising. It's harder to afford things. So this is critical in this environment not to be seen as uh, you know enjoying a great time, you know, making record level profits and not caring about your customers and letting them sort of. Uh, lose control of their financial situation, uh, get it further into debt, uh, being unable to manage their debt, um, et cetera, et cetera. This is the time to be empathetic and helpful and to demonstrate that you really, really care as opposed to sitting back uh, and uh, doing the opposite. And I think it's a dangerous trap to be in right now, especially um, how this crisis is playing out in favor of of some groups and not in favor of others. Great advice, great insights. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us, Jen and Steph. Thank you very much for having me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.